Welcome to Voices in Hyperspace. I'm Adrian Smith, aka Legendary Black Lion. I'm Mel Asylum, also known as Mel's Rebellion. I'm Nita Painter, and I like to paint. Hello, this is Sunday. And hi, everyone. I'm Rod from Ion Sci-Fi Pod. All right, the gang's all here. Uh, we watched episode one of Babylon 5 proper. This episode is entitled Midnight on the Firing Line. And just to kind of get us into this thing. So Midnight on the Firing Line is an episode from the first season of Babylon 5, which each of the seasons also have like titles. And the title of season one is Signs and Portents. Episode aired on January 26, 1994. Overall outline when the Narn attack when the Narn attack a Centauri colony, Londo and Jakar nearly come to blows. Meanwhile, raiders are attacking transport ships near the station. What's really interesting and amazing about this episode, for everyone that watched the the pilot, the gathering, there there's so many major differences. They made some incredible production difference. And you all will notice that there are some actors that are present from the first episode and there are some that are missing. And another cool thing is when they made these different changes in the cast, they don't just pretend those people weren't there. They do give like some timeline reasons why those people might not be there or, you know, or why things are different on Babylon 5. Um, I'm going to ask you, Nita. So you saw you saw the pilot and now you saw episode one. Are there any major differences that you saw that you liked that you didn't like? I want to kind of get your initial thoughts on that. The difference so like the doctor wasn't there. I was I was looking forward to the doctor being in the show some more. And the telepath, is that the same telepath that was in the pipe? No, it is not. It is a different telepath. Okay, because when I was watching it, I was like, maybe I just am misremembering who that lady was. But okay, cool. Um, it's a different telepath, but is that supposed to be the same character? No. Oh, it's a whole nother character. Okay. Whole well, new character. So should I just like trash the pilot then and just let that shit go? Yes and no. But I want I want to hear what everybody else thinks. What do you think, Mel and, and Rod? Do y'all think Maybe let the first, let the pilot go, or what are y'all? What are your opinions as far as like going from the pilot to episode one? I feel like the pilot laid down a lot of the groundwork for the setting and the characters, minus the characters that were replaced. But the characters, even though they were replaced, the positions of those characters were very defined. Oh, so, yeah, just replace them <laughs> like they replaced them. I, I think it's really important to the story. Even though it came after, no, it didn't. Okay, no, no. Say, no, don't trash the pilot, Nita. And I'm just going to say this. We will all find out that one of the characters that was replaced will return and play a very significant role in later seasons. Oh, yeah. Talking about, man, this story. So it immediately starts off, like, off and running, Right. So the pacing is much better, but also you under you, you do get to see like okay we're no longer trying to sell the show we sold the show now let's get let's get knee deep in this right and it starts off pretty much with an ac- action sequence and um, and then the next thing that I would like to ask Nita about 
is what did you think about the show's intro? Well, I mean, I guess it was forgettable. Or maybe it was integrated so well into the show that I didn't realize it wasn't part of the episode. I don't know. I'm feeling a little uh, called out. It's okay. No, no, no. It's okay. Because for me, when the show was airing on television, when that theme came on, everything stopped. And I was like, it's a new episode. Mel, how did you feel about going from the the soundtrack from episode, from the pilot to episode one? It was very it's it sounded very open and it it made it seem bigger than it kinda looks because the, the CG wasn't that great back then. Even though back then it probably looked super awesome and now it's kinda like what is the, but the music <laughs> really set the tone of what how big they were trying to make it look. Yes. Without having the French horns and copying Star Trek. Awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the opening Good. just set the setting, even, and it that also goes with it. It's all just a, um, laying down the setting. Like, you know, you're, you're going in the outer space, you're going into this big open space before we put you inside the, the, the only parts of the ship that the important people go to. Right. So the episode kicks off. With the Centauri outpost being ambushed, this is Ragesh 3. Um, this is a part of science fiction TV shows that I love when they constantly repeat names of places. And I think it works well for this script because they want us to be mindful of locations. They want us to be mindful of uh, this location in particular. It's a Centauri agricultural colony. colony. We learn a little bit later its importance and why it's being attacked. But before the Centauri who are at the outpost are able to report who is attacking them, the outpost is destroyed. Then we go into the opening theme, which does give the sense like this is going to be an epic political sci-fi show. You know, it's a space opera. And once again, Lando opens the show. I find it interesting that they always pick Londo to open up the... They, they pick Londo to open the pilot, and they picked Londo to open up this one. And in this case, Londo is interacting with uh, Chief of Security Garibaldi. Actually, no, I'm moving I'm moving a little too fast. What's happening is... No, 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 no I'm right. I'm right. I'm, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> so, we're, ta- we're talking to Garibaldi. Introduces... Londo introduces us to his diplomatic staff, which is one person, Veer. And Rod, could you give us a brief description of what Veer, his his look, his mannerisms were like? Oh, sure. But before I do that, can I touch on the opening? Oh, yes. Go ahead. One of the things that I love about the opening of Babylon 5 is that opening voiceover monologue that kind of gives you an overview of well, it sets the stage for what's going on. And I think that's really cool because if you aren't familiar with the show, but you start watching an episode from the beginning, you kind of get the setting. And I think that's brilliant that they included that in the opening. Sinclair is saying, hey, this is Babylon 5. This is why it's created. They even tell you the year that the show takes place in. So it's real informative right from the bat. You kind of can get your bearings based on that. And I just wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. As far as Veer, you would think at this stage, the very first episode <laughs> is comedic relief. 
And in order mm-hmm. to pull that off, because comedy is very difficult. Drama is easy, but mm-hmm. pulling off comedy is hard. And Stephen first was a perfect choice. And he yes. really played that part well, because you think that Vera's kind of this bumbling assistant. And it's every character in this show goes through a character arc, but it's really exciting to see where he ends up by the end of the series. Yeah. And I may have these out of order, but we're also introduced to the new station ops commander, uh, Lieutenant Commander Ivanova. She replaces, I think is uh, Takashima. I think I have their name correct or wrong. One thing that we said in the last episode was we didn't like that actress. She came across very like mechanical, robotic, not comfortable with the role. But very quickly, Ivanova kind of commands like your attention. Claudia Christian, like in very short amount of time, she establishes that character and she lived that character. And it's amazing because, you know, this is episode one. And again, yes, she goes through a a whole character arc, but we just in her introduction, we get a whole lot of gravity with who who and what she is. And later on in the episode, we get even more. We get some backstory that kind of grounds her in the universe. We're also introduced to ISN. This is where we see reports of an election that is happening on Earth. If you haven't guessed yet, this show is going to be heavily uh, influenced by politics. There's a lot of, that are, there are a lot of politics going on in the foreground and in the background. Earth politics, always hanging on in the background, but they will have direct effects on Babylon 5, but also the struggle for Commander Sinclair to be diplomatic on the station as well. There, There's gonna be a lot of very frustrating situations that have to be addressed diplomatically or in a you know maybe manipulating rules in in a way in a certain way around that so, time i was trying to figure out who he was saying that they had a battle with before and that they are mm-hmm. honorable fighters um, can somebody remind yeah. me who that was yes what do so they what happens that? is so what happens londo is reporting to the commander, like, hey, you know, we're under attack. We got to figure out who this is. <laughs> What's funny, Lando immediately suspects the Narn. He's like, Jakar, do you have any, you know, information on this? And he's like, oh, not me. I don't know. And so later, Ivanova and Sinclair, they're having a discussion. They talk about the Centauri. They talk about the Narn. And they talk about the Mimbari. This is where you get a little bit of the backstory of the Earth-Mimbari War. He, you know, he only mentions like, yeah, I fought in the war. They are honorable fighters. And if you, you know, you, you'll learn some of the character characteristics will be more revealed of the Minbari. The Minbari, one, there's one Minbari present on the station at this moment. That is Ambassador Delin. Uh, Delin looked different in the pilot than she does in episode one. Can you give us a, a brief description of that, Mel? Wow, I don't think I noticed it that much. They used the same actress. Yeah, I noticed it was the same actress. But uh, let's see. That's her in there. So facial recognition is not my suit. No, it's okay. No problem. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Rod? Can you uh, give us a brief, kind of like a comparison between the pilot and 
episode one. I'm going to mute because my dogs are playing with the toys. <laughs> you know, not really. I think the only differences that I noticed <clears throat> is that they made the actual episode of the show versus the pilot. They made her makeup more softer in some ways. Yes. And because it's real, really angular and harsh in the pilot. And they softened the makeup. And I'm sure there was some reasons behind that when they started to produce the actual television series. Yes. So you got a picture? Yeah. She looks uh, more androgynous in the first one. Yes. And uh, their their species is pretty androgynous anyway. Like when you get to see the rest of them, they they just all look like people. Yeah. And they they pulled the the headpiece back. Mm-hmm. And it's something interesting, and I think Star Trek keeps learning and forgetting this lesson. Hold on, sorry. Star Trek keeps sorry about that, guys. Star Trek keeps learning and forgetting this lesson in how to apply makeup or you know develop characters uh, who are aliens, but still allow the actor or actress to come through under the makeup. For instance, between Discovery and Strange New Worlds. Um, the Klingons in Discovery were heavily makeup and lots of paint. And they looked like they had these bulbous heads. And, you know, they were supposed to look monstrous. But in Strange New Worlds, they, they toned it back. And you could see the actor or actress that was in the Klingon makeup. But the makeup looks so, like, fleshy and, like, like real. The ridges look, look like just uh, bone ridges. And they didn't look like they were stuck on. And so, you know, I, I mentioned that because Babylon 5, remember this This is in, what, 1994? What, 1994. 1994. For the series. Um, the first for the series. series. They, 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 they had to deal with solving some problems. Um, Jakar, in the first episode, did look like he was wearing a helmet. And now he looks more like a, a person. Delin looked like she was wearing a helmet in, in the pilot, and now she looks like a person. And you can you can suspend disbelief a lot easier because you can connect with the 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 face that is the character. You know what I mean? And, you know, just to kind of describe it, the the Mimbari they are for the most part hairless. I think some of the warrior cast will have beards. They're hairless. And they have like these bones coming out of the back of their head. Um, the characters that were introduced first to, they um, they come across as very wise and passive aggressive. You know, not passive aggressive, but like Pas- nonviolent. Pacifist. Yeah, pacifist. There you go. That's the word. Pacifist. And um, yeah, they the lens seems much softer. They do accent her feminine her feminine characteristics in the character's face. You know, bone structure. They took those little weird spike things off of her chin. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, those are some of those major differences. And I think, um, too, may I interject something, Damien? Yeah. I think yes, it's important to note, too, about these powers that we're seeing in the galaxy mm-hmm. at the start of the show. The Membari yes. are more pacifistic, but they are the, outside of the Vorlons, they are the most advanced civilization yes. in the galaxy. They're more far yes. more advanced than the Centauri, the Narn, Earth, everybody. But they are very like the Lynn is a great, great representation of characteristics 
of that civilization. They are very, some people might describe them as, but yes. if you attack them, they are more than capable of defending themselves. Yeah. And uh, there is an encounter later in the series that really proves this point out. So, so now we're, um, Lando and Veer, they get a message and they find out like, yeah, the attacks were committed by the Narn. They found this out by uh, looking at a uh, surveillance video that was transmitted to them shortly after the attack. And what does Lando do? He immediately goes to Jakar. And Jakar is sitting there with the drink. No, he's like, what's up? Oh, he has a plate of food. I'm going to have to make a comment about this. You remember how people used to make fun of uh, Brad Pitt for always having food in all of his scenes? Uh, no, I think for, Andreas... Okay. 11, yeah, definitely. Yeah, every scene he's literally eating. But like, you know, for an actor, that's his thing. Andreas does the exact same throughout this whole series. He does his best acting while he's stuffing his face. And it's hilarious to me. But uh, he, uh, Lando, Lando... Sorry, I'm going to cut this whole part out. But <laughs> it's cool. Uh, Lando confronts Jakar. And he's like, you will pay for this. And what happens next is a little bit more, you know, you know, this first episode, we're doing more exposition. These two species have a deep history. Could one of you kind of give us a just a brief just background on uh, the Narn and the Centauri interaction? Like their past, like a, a Babylon veteran. The Satari oh. were the conquerors. They they actually introduced themselves to humans as like the rulers of the galaxy and stuff, like very pompous. And the the Narn were conquered by them, and they are very defensive about it. They are very uh, determined to get their power back, like to to stand up as people and not be seen as conquered. Yeah, so I agree with I agree with Mel oh, too. Ahead. I uh, I always thought of the Centauri like the Roman Empire. They're very nationalistic, very hedonistic, and as Mel pointed out, they conquered much of the galaxy. Uh, but that was hundreds of years ago, and the Narn were people that they conquered and literally stripped, as Jakar talks about in this in this season premiere they actually strip Narn. And that's kind of the modus operandi of the Centauri. But because of their own decadence, their empire, their, they call it a republic, but it's really an empire like Rome, yeah. fell into decline. And that's where yes. we meet them at the beginning of this series. And, you know, uh, I was thinking about that dynamic. It reminds me, I, uh, I know you said Rome... It makes me think of France, also with like the the type of dress and the visuals. They kind of look like they're trying to look like Napoleon, right? right? Uh, and as far as the Republic, is they call it a Republic, but it's really an empire. And it made me think: okay, Centauri are France, the Narn are Jamaica, and they, you know, the Jamaicans, you know, they had their rebellion and and their independence. This is very much what the uh, Narn did. And so, singly enough, especially in this episode, the Narn are looked at as villains for wanting to fight and maintain their uh, independence and freedom. But we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, because even Delenn was like, you can't, that was a hundred years ago. Why would you try to, like, 
get it back now. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, like time mitigates the injustice. Uh huh. Hmm. Where have we heard that before? I was right. noticing that too when, and it was annoying me that uh, I don't know the guy's name with the mostly balding head and all that crazy hair. He was saying how there will be a war if my family member is injured, as if he did not have the same care and compassion for the other 499,000 citizens of his peoples. Right. And again, it reveals kind of like some of the nuance of the politics, like the corruption and nepotism that is acceptable or that, um, that permeates the Centauri public. Okay. So, so in this interaction, Jakar acknowledges like, yeah, you know what? We, we, I just found out. Yeah, we did do it. And they have their back and forth. Meanwhile, on the command deck, Lieutenant Commander Ivanova, uh, they, she receives uh, distress. And at first they suspect that this is in connection with the attack on Ragesh 4, but they realize like, okay, the transponder is not a Centauri. It's, it's an earth ship. So uh, her and Garibaldi, they're on like their their mystery. They're trying to figure out like who, you know, who is sending this distress signal. Garibaldi says, like, oh, you know, there have been some raids in the sector lately. This could be another this could be another one of those raids. So he gets a, he gets a fighter and him and some of the other fighters, they go out to go look. I find it pretty interesting that the chief of security can just be like, hey, let's get some stuff and let's leave the station. <laughs> But that's what they did. They just hopped into some fighters and left. Meanwhile, once again, Talia Winters, this is this is the telepath. She enters the command deck as well. And she's trying to check in with Commander Ivana. She's again turned down. Uh, again, Claudia Christian, amazing actress. Um I would I'm I'm interested. What imp- what impression did you get of her? That mute button is really hard. Yeah, it's like Sorry. huge and in the center of the screen. But for whatever reason, I'm not. I'm not very much noticing a lot of these other characters. Like you had mentioned earlier, that it was interesting for Longo to both the pilot and his episode. I really like Londo. He's the only name I remember. So I've been paying more attention to his story than like you know what though there is a reason and that reason is because he he comes across as like a larger than life character you know one moment like one sorry i need i saw my battery was low and i wanted to make sure yeah so peter jurassic brought that character he brought londo very similar to uh, Claudia Christian. And I think that's why this episode got me so, like, uh, just, like, involved with the show is because everybody brings so... they Everybody brings their A-game to it. So, well, let me ask you the same question, Mel. Like, how, what, is, what is your... At this point, the way that Talia is interacting with Ivanova, like, what is your impression of Ivanova? Well, like the the actress that she replaced, the character is robotic, but it it's well, not robotic, but strong. I think the other actress was trying to be strong, but came off robotic, metal strong. I don't know why I make that so. But when you find out why she's being like passive, 
it makes sense for her to just be like, I can't handle these emotions right now. Let me let me bury myself into my work. And I think she did a good job. I really felt it. Uh, I also kind of feel like, like what's his name? Garibaldi was like, yeah, she's not very social anyway. And then the way that she's about her work, the way that she's very logical about her work, she does kind of seem like an, uh, I got to throw this in there, autistic representation, or a really good one though. Mm. She's a professional, she does her job, she, she's, she's not limited. She's just different, and I love that about her. <laughs> and the, the way that she's on stereo, that I think I saw something years ago that re- this reminded me of how they mentioned she's always mentioning that she's Russian. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, they had to repeat that like three or four times in this episode. And you also notice she does affect a very slight, like very slight um, speech pattern that could be something like a relic of, you know, Russians from, in, you know, in the future. That goes away. It goes away later in the season, in the episode, in the, in the show. So we are we are now looking at Mondo um, is apologizing to Commander Sinclair, you know, for the dust up that he had with Jakar. Um, Commander Sinclair is trying to play the diplomatic role. He's trying to like figure out. Is there a way for us to just like not fight? Can we can we can we just chill out? And uh, Lando is brushing all of that aside. He's like, look, we we Centauri have a very special ability. Rod, can you can you uh, share on this part? The the special ability that Lando reveals about himself. You know what? I can't remember what he was referring to. Oh, refresh my okay. memory. Yeah, there, dream there was a whole lot. No, I can Yeah, do the it. dream. I know. Oh, okay, go okay. Go ahead, Sunday. Uh, yeah. He was um acknowledge or he was explaining that they can like predict their their death they can see it in their dreams sometimes they'll know the the date and the how um he tells how the two of them are going to be about 20 years from now choking each other to death and either one will be the wiser or the other will be dead that's right, Sunday. Thank you. That now comes back to me when you say that, but that's exactly right. And that does play that kind of foreshadowing that Lando says that his people have about their own fate. That, that does play a major part in the story later on. And it just goes back to a lot of plot elements that are introduced in this show, in this first episode do play a major part. It's not just something thrown away. So definitely pay attention because in later seasons, you will be amazed at what returns and what cycles back. Like stuff that comes back even from the pilot. Yep. No spoilers. (laughs) Sorry, Nina, no spoilers. (laughs) And about Londo too, Peter Jurassic is so brilliant in its role because when you see him, you think, oh, here's this blowhard. He is larger than life, like Damien said. But also, if you notice, Lando is very political. Because in that scene between Veer, when he tells Veer, look, Centauri Prime may say that we're not going to respond, but the council doesn't know that. So we're going to act like we didn't even hear that because Mm -hmm. I want retribution for this attack. So that gives you another insight into the type of character that he is and what he later does later on in the series. Yeah. And uh, Sinclair uses that exact same tactic, but for different reasons in the same uh, in the same episode. Um, 
in the in their conversation, Sinclair suggests like, hey, we'll we'll go to the council, we'll put we'll put it to a vote, and we will vote sanctions against the NARC. Um, we do we we later learn that Lando's nephew is stationed at Ragesh Three because of nepotism. He gave him a job because of his position, and so he's you know as as you all said, he's personally interested in everything that happens there. And Commander Sinclair basically reiterates like, hey, look, Babylon 5 is to help keep the peace in the galaxy. And Lando brushes that aside. It's like, what? Peace? Whatever. Blood calls for blood. And, you know, one thing that you do have to realize is that, okay, uh, as Rod said, Lando is very political, but he also is often very drunk in the show. True. <laughs> And and he does say he says a lot of things that just comes across like, you know what? That sounds like what a drunk person would be saying right now. But he also is speaking from a position of you know being superior, kind of not caring too much for the diplomatic situation. You know, if it doesn't if it doesn't benefit him directly. So you know he's very being he's being very outspoken and outlandish. But Damian, <clears throat> if I may say too, though he's very shrewd. Lando is yes. very shrewd and very yes. manipulative and very smart. So to underestimate him is a mistake. Yes, absolutely. So next, we catch up with Ivanova. She's walking on the Zocalo, and her and Garibaldi are talking. And they're having a discussion about the raids on the ships. Garibaldi comes up with the possibility that, hey, something is up. Some, you know, the... For the supply ship, uh, for the supply ship, the routes are kept secret because you know for this very reason that somebody would try to raid them. So it has to be an inside job, and so he's gonna, he, you know, he's off to try to solve the next level of this mystery and figure out like, okay, who's raiding these ships? Talia appears, trying to speak with Ivanova. Ivanova exits the scene immediately. She really does not like. Her. And Claire goes to consult with. Ambassador Kosh. And this is again, if you all remember Ambassador Kosh, uh, he's the Vorlon. He wears the encounter suit. He stays in the alien sector. You have to put on like a special mask so you can breathe down there. And uh, in their discussion, Kosh, he, you know, he's aware of the whole situation, but he's like, you know what, just kind of let them, let them fight and kill each other. Now he says it in a very like cryptic manner, but it's still matter of fact, like, you know what, they're, there's no hope for these two. Let them die. Let them destroy each other in war, basically. And Sinclair, he's not very comfortable with that. Any thoughts on this interaction with Kosh? I thought it was kind of fun. Go ahead. Well, I would say I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Let them fight over dumb stuff. Even though, like, I feel like Lando uh, is trying to be not, is trying to let go of the things that happened in the past. I don't know what happened because the way Homeboy was talking about how Londo's folks, you know, killed all these innocent peoples, but then the way Londo talks about his own people, like they are meat, they're a meat species. I'm like, what, when did that happen? How did the tables get turned like that? But us feeling like, yeah, let them fight and let them get their curse words off. But at the same time, I'm feeling like Londo is trying to turn 
but I'm leaning on like, you know, let them fight. Duke it up. What were you going to say, Mel? I thought it was interesting how he responded. Not just to simply say, uh, let them fight, but which one do you think we should like either back up or, or believe? And he was like, both. And I'm like, okay. His answer <laughs> was so simple. And it, it from uh, at least my perspective, or at least what his perspective might be, the two of them fight like children. And yeah, there's bigger stakes because you're talking about entire cultures, but the way they go about confronting each other about it is pretty immature and he kind of seems like he's above them in a way even lynn uh, has less of a a mature control over herself than he does because he just kind of sits back and it it seems that way maybe because he's a completely different form of alien he doesn't interact with them as much but if a, a mature adult is watching some kids fight, you probably would to sit back and give them one word answers because they're not going to take in that much information. And the way that they're fighting, they don't want any more information. They just want to go at each other. There's nothing you can say. And I think that's why yeah. I feel like he's more mature than the other. Well, they, I don't know what gender they are. They, we don't know nothing right. about them. When when kids are fighting like that, you can't give them any information. You kind of have to let them learn on their own. True. And what we what we learn about Kosh, the way that he that Kosh communicates, Kosh uses it sounds like paradoxes and metaphors, very short, cryptic statements. And this comes like this comes across as very 80s slash 90s. This is the the wise sage character. And this is where it starts to no longer feel feel like a sci-fi. It definitely feels more fantasy, which is actually really cool because it adds that extra dynamic, like that underlying mystery. Like there's something more going on here, especially with this character. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, like when this show first came out, the more I, I just wanted to learn more about Kosh every episode. So when, the, when Kosh did not appear, it was kind of disappointing, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that too. And, you know, my perception of Kosh is that he was, uh, they, or <laughs> I'm not sure how you refer to them, but I'm going to say they, they are meant okay. to be a mystery at this point in the show. And I love the way that the other characters are like, what is going on with these Vorlons? What are they? Who are they? Why are they here? Personally, I wouldn't say that they are like a sage advisor because an advisor advises. The Vorlons don't. If you come to them, they'll give you an answer, but it'll be cryptic or it'll be one or two words. And then that's it. And you have to figure it out. And that really (laughs) becomes more clear in the second and subsequent seasons. So I like that, though. I like the way that everybody else on the ship was like, oh, the Vorlons are here. What are they? What's under that encounter suit? And so you are experiencing the mystery right along with the characters and i think that's a brilliant piece of writing yeah and uh, since we're kind of like getting our impression of certain characters how does everyone what is everyone's impression of jacar jacar the narn out into space like go release him through and need us about that life He's a I, jerk. I can't hear he was a jerk in the pilot too and so mm-hmm. the pilot like what happened in the pilot is not like the 
doesn't come before what happens in season one, right? It so, does. I mean, like it's not like yesterday. Oh yeah, yeah, correct. So it's like it, it's like a year or so before. He has a, a record of being a jerk, and then he's he's super manipulative. And mm-hmm. I mean, they re- I think the writers really want us to dislike that character, and they're doing a very good job of it. Just like, why are you making a deal with this dude? Or should we tell on you? Or are you just going to stop being a jerk and say sorry? Like, no. Right. All right. Uh, moving on to the next thing. So we see Londo. He's drunk. He's notified of an emergency session by the council. So uh, what what's going on is they're going to vote to sanction NARN, right? The Council of Non-Aligned Worlds, there's a lot of other aliens. You see their faces, but you don't really hear much about them at that moment. But it's a lot of other species that are at play. Um, go ahead, Ron. Oh, no, I, I didn't have any comment. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I apologize. So, um, and this is where Londo finds out that the Centauri Republic is not going to do anything. They're like, this place is it's too far. It's not important. Um, by the time we get there, everybody's going to be dead. And he starts, you know, he's he's drunk and in a rage. He's throwing bottles and stuff around. But he's, he, he tells Vera, he's like, look, when we go in here for this emergency council thing, don't tell them what the Centauri Republic is going to do. We want them to... We want them to act. We want them to protect Ragesh Three to sanction Narn. What happens? So it, you know, you know, it's, it's hitting. You know, it's going back. Scene scenes are changing really quickly. Talia and Garibaldi are in the elevator now. Talia is asking Garibaldi, like, hey, you know, how do we, how, how do I approach Lieutenant Commander Ivana? She's very uh, difficult to read. He's like, yeah, you know, she's she's typically like that. However. And this is where I, this is one reason why I'm, I don't, this is one reason I didn't like Garibaldi in this episode. He straights up rats <laughs> Ivana out. He goes, hey, you know, after her shift, she hangs out at the casino. You can catch her there. He just give, gives her up. <laughs> and I tell you um, something else too, that's very 90s about that scene in the elevator is that he mm-hmm. also hits on Talia in a way that is inappropriate, and that wouldn't fly now if the show oh. was made today. When he made that comment about, "Oh, you can come back to my place, and I can show you my my favorite thing or my second," fa-, and I'm thinking, "Nope, nope, nope, <laughs> right? Nope, that wouldn't and- fly today, <laughs> and it shouldn't, and it shouldn't have flown back then." But I'm just saying that's the '90s. You yeah. can tell that cultural difference. Oh yeah, and she walks off with a smirk too. She. I think that was legit. Like the actress was like, "That's kind of funny the way he delivered that." But it's like you, you know, okay, something's up with this this guy, right? He's, you know, he, it's obvious he's the the hard nosed detective hitting on the the new um, the new lady in the telepath. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. And then you also kind of get a sense, like, okay, there's gonna there may be something there, right? But who knows? May I I reveal the trivia? Um, Mm -hmm. The actor, Jerry Doyle, who plays Garibaldi, and the telepath, Andrea Thompson, Talia Winters, they actually Mm -hmm. were married in real life during the course of that show. Really? Yes. 
they got married and they also got divorced before the show ended. But yeah, so that kind of flirtation that you kind of see there, um, yeah, there was something to that. But yeah, that's yeah. an actual fact. They were both married in real life. I also found it kind of weird that with what 25,000 people on the station, why does she have to check in physically with her? Like, shouldn't it, and then it be in the future, you have computers and stuff. Even back in the 90s, couldn't she have just turned in her paperwork? Like, that's a good point. <laughs> I thought it was weird that, like, I have to track her down and see her in person. And then her her being so professional, why did she not just get it over with? I mean, I know she's she obviously was in the middle of something when she went up to the bridge for lack of whatever it is. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna call where she works at the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like it it was kind of just thrown in there without consideration for um, the setting at all. Well, you know, Mel, you bring well, up they needed them to have conflict. Like I see where they had the conflict where they had to throw in. Uh, explaining the psych core but mm-hmm. the way that yeah. they went about doing it didn't make sense i agree mel because honestly the very first time that i watched this it took me a while to warm up to talia winters it really did it because i kept thinking okay you are required to check in with the commander you did what is this? Oh, but I want her to really like me. I didn't. I thought, okay, you fulfill your professional obligation. Keep it. And they, they, they clearly had like there was easy way, easy, clear. I mean, better ways that they could have done it. Like obviously, her she could have been involved. They could have met each other during each other's jobs, where there could have been tension between the two of them while they're simply doing their jobs, where they in a way that they intersect. Not, I got to check in with you. <laughs> like, she taking role today. <laughs> Teacher need to know I came into class and didn't skip. So what you all are pointing out is probably one of the seeds that were planted in season one that didn't quite catch. And all I can say is that there are some more cast changes throughout the, the, the series. But they do tie this one up. And you just have to watch the series maybe two or three times to be like, oh, I get why this part was done like this it is a major spoiler so i'm not gonna say no don't do it it (laughs) does a lot of memories for me it will make more sense but much later on in the show's run but even with what they said in what she said on which one the the second in command just from what she said reminded me of how autistic people were treated during world war ii like you could either be yeah you didn't have any choice you give the work for us be drugged to death or actual death. Right, yeah. Um, moving along, so Car meets Sinclair in Hydroponics, which this is uh, another production choice in the pilot that's a little different. Now, the Hydroponics did, they, they attempted to show a lot more as if, you know, we're, um, we're indoors and these are fields, kind of like in Interstellar when they were on that ship uh, or station where they were playing baseball and you can see the curvature inside. Uh, but, you know, it's all painted matte in the back on Babylon 5. So you can see some trees. And then in the back, you see like, oh, there's a painting. And it looks like it's supposed to be a lot of stuff. But, you know, but whatever. The conversation is basically, you know, when uh, Jakar is attempting to appeal to Sinclair so they could, you know, not sanction Narn. And he's like, let me remind you that when the humans were fighting the Minbari, the Narn were supplying you with weapons and Sinclair kicks back. He's like, man, look, 
we know that the Narn will sell to anybody. So don't be all high and mighty. You weren't really helping us. You were helping yourself. And, uh, what we find out is from that conversation, uh, Sinclair, remember, you know, he it gives him a clue on what to look for uh, that helps Garibaldi investigate. Garibaldi figures out that the Raiders are attacking the transport ships and that their data chips were being mined. Like someone had hacked in, figured out where everybody was going and was attacking them. And this is a very 90s thing that like, you know, the detective had figured out the, the mystery, but there's one more ship and it's going to be under attack as soon as it comes out of hyperspace. So we need to quickly go and help. You know, we found out who it is and we got to go right now. So Garibaldi grabs uh, some fighters and they go to find this. They go to find the, the, the last transport. Oh, oh, there was there was one more little detail. The supply ship is registered as is registered as a supply ship, but uh, it was being used to transport refugees. So we have the stakes turned up a lot more. Not not only are we trying to save a ship, but it's a, it's a ship full of people. Sinclair goes to report this back to Earth Central Command, and they basically tell him like, "Hey, I know y'all about to vote on sanctioning Narn, but if you if y'all do, it can hurt." the president's chances of re-election because you might drive us into another war. Go ahead and delay that vote until after the election is done. Does this situation sound familiar to anyone that remembers some political history? No. I believe, now, I'm going to have to have people correct me on this. I think this is uh, Lyndon B. Johnson versus Ronald, not Ronald Reagan, the other one, R Richard Nixon. There's a hostage situation. I think it's the Iran hostage situation. And basically, they wanted the hostages to stay under their hostage situation to make Lyndon Johnson look weak and to get uh, Richard Nixon elected in. And they did. Like, they could have literally done something sooner to bring him home, and they didn't. They did it for political reasons. So that, I, I, like, the, I like that touch. But also, again, the humans are doing what the Centauri are doing. They're choosing not to do anything for political reasons. And they're they're putting the lives of people, um, they're putting the lives of the people who are, <clears throat> sorry, they're, they're putting the lives of those people who are in harm's way. They're, they're prolonging it. So, uh, yeah. Hey, can we take a pause real quick? Yeah. Because uh, Dominga is sending me a message. So I'm going to, Okay. I'll, I'll clip all of this out, but. Love, can you hear me? You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you put your right foot in. All right, so she, huh, yeah, I'm going to get the report recording going. I'll be able to clip all of this out, but let me go attend to something real quick. Sorry. Okay. Okay, never mind. She's already gone. So she, she went to go um, handle an emergency, so she's going to be on mute for the rest of this. So I apologize. I hope everything's okay. I think, well, I'm not sure. The, a dog has to go to the emergency vet. Um, I don't know which dog, who it belongs to, but they're uh, that's what they're doing. So hopefully everything works out. Um, all right. Um, when we come back in, do, do any of you want to comment on the politics situation of, of Centauri and Earth not wanting to do anything for political reasons? Mic check. Yes. One, two. 
Gotcha. Can you all hear me? Okay. Yes. I can hear you. Okay. All right. So believe, okay, where I was. So basically Sinclair is given the, he's, he's being told to delay the vote or if all, all else fails, if they have to vote, he's being told to abstain and essentially let the Narn and Centauri fight. Sinclair basically ignores this. As soon as he gets off of that communication call, he's talking to Ivanova and he's like, look, you're going to go vote. You're going to go to this council meeting, uh, in my place, you know, I have to go investigate something, you know, first contact uh, protocols. When there's a clear and present danger to the station, I have to go check it out. And guess what? These raiders are clear and present danger. So he's leaving. He goes, oh, by the way, you couldn't find me because I had to go. Therefore, you didn't get these orders from Earth Central and you don't know that you're not supposed to vote. So when you go in there, you're going to vote, right? <laughs> you know, what it tells audiences right from the jump, because this is the very first episode of the series, is that all of these governments, all of these factions have their own agenda. So even though Earth yes. is supposed to be neutral, and so in a way are the Membari, of course, the Narn and the Centauri are involved in their conflict, everybody has an agenda. And so yes. everyone is not quite what they seem. And it kind of sets that expectation from the jump. And I really liked that they did it. Yeah, this shows there are lots of shades of gray. A lot of the people who you think would be the good guy, quote unquote good guys, they do some things. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> they bend the rules. And that that's another 90s thing where like, okay, these are the good guys. These are the good cops, sorry. These are, it's hard for me to say that with it straight face these are the good cops but sometimes they have to break the rules to be good cops sometimes you have to break the law or break a few limbs to be a good cop and that's kind of that's commander sinclair right now and that type of trope carries through today <laughs> oh yeah absolutely <laughs> well i mean like um, working with a system that's not working with you and that's that's the whole political thing like in order to to work around the system even though you're a good guy sometimes you gotta work around the system they tried to do that make that point in the gathering with the, what's her name that got replaced she was like i always followed the rules oh, i used to get in trouble Leah. but this is the yeah this is the time that we're going to break the rules and and that's pretty much like a lot of what they do and and i feel i maybe that's why i think that that's politics it is yeah <laughs> it is. absolutely and you see but more J. Michael that, Straczynski, oh, go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, let me just say you see more of that mail as this show goes on. The political intrigue is next level. Yes. There are no clear good good guys, bad guys. No. And throughout the whole series, you're being challenged on on that binary, which again is amazing. Yes. So, so Sinclair he leaves the station. He joins Garibaldi. And basically, they enter into an action sequence where they're um, fighting off the raider. And if you if you recall earlier, um, Sinclair and Ivanova were having a conversation. This is where Sinclair basically reveals like his whole. He comes from a family of fighter pilots. It goes back generations. So they do a, a great job mopping up the raiders. And he's like, "Hey, look, we can't just leave uh, the the ones that are getting away. They're trying to lead us away." from a command ship. So they ignore them and they go and they find the command ship. And they take the commander of that command ship prisoner. And basically, this is where everything starts to wrap, I'm sorry, tie together and wrap up. 
During the council meeting, Jakar walks in. The whole council's there, all the aliens. And by the way, remember I was saying about the... So you can tell who a main character is because you can tell they have a face under their makeup. The rest of the characters are just caked and covered. So you see a lot of bulbous heads and eyeballs and stuff in that room. Yeah, budget constraints. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of rubber masks. Absolutely. It takes a lot of time to do that. A yeah. lot of those alien costumes take about... Well, just the face makeup takes about five hours. Yeah. Like, to get it right yeah. for every episode. And right. they were on a tight budget. And time constraints. Absolutely. Yeah. And even... So... Like, oh, go ahead. Uh, it, this was still kind of new for them to do aliens like this. We never really saw... Most of the aliens were masks or like full facial things where you didn't see them. Uh, these were like people aliens. We didn't have that before so this was this type of makeup cosmic cosmetic makeup was very new back then. yeah and and not always have to bring this up they did a good job to make themselves stand out and look different from star trek mm-hmm. the star trek makeup um for the most part they did a great job but there were some basically we're just going to put some ridges on your forehead right Forehead protrude out, your eyebrows kind of a nose give you a, prosthesis. Yeah, <laughs> something on your ear, you know. And and you know they were doing the best that they could too. <laughs> but it is what it is, y'all. And then yeah. to put all that stuff on the actor's face and still allow them to act and breathe and move. <laughs> Yo, speaking of which, there's a species on there, the Drazi. I would have hated to ever play that character. Those yeah. characters. Because they look like they have they have their nostrils covered completely. Well, they you, have to breathe through their mouths. The actors do. Andreas Casula should have gotten an award because he's able to give powerful performances under all of that Narn makeup and those contact yes. lenses. And you still oh. get a magnificent performance, which we will see later on from that actor. Yeah. So the council meeting is underway. Jakar walks in he's he's basically telling everybody like look there's no need for this meeting i have like if you turn on the the tv i guess it was the tv he's like look you're about to receive a live broadcast from ragesh 3 right now and what they get right now like to my 2023 brain i'm like wow this looks like it's straight after the iraq war but you know came out of the 90s it is a Centauri. It is Ando's nephew, who is clearly under duress, reading a statement saying that, hey, we asked for help from Centauri Prime. They abandoned us. Therefore, we have aligned ourselves with the Narn. So everything's cool. Uh, no need to send anyone after us or sanction the Narn, basically. And uh, it, it looks like one of those... Uh, Hostage videos, if, if any of you remember looking at those. Absolutely. That's what it was meant to evoke, that type of imagery. Yes. Like the prisoner of war videos, the hostage videos. Um, man, they put so many different layers in this episode. And uh, and then, so after presenting that, Jakar also reveals like, hey, the Centauri government's not going to do anything because they don't think that there's any problem. So I think we should vote to dismiss all charges. And, then, and, and all right. This, I think, is the funniest part of the whole episode. Y'all forgive me because for my humor. He goes, does anyone second it? And there's this weird-looking alien in the front row. He kind of does this, like, 
I'll say, like, he just raises his hand kind of like in a very just, I don't know why it was funny to me, but it was just kind of like, sure, yeah, I'll do it, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't want to be here. If you, if you give right. me this option to get out, I will take it alone. Let me out right. of here. Yeah, I was just a little bit triggered by that situation, being in board meetings and people just voting for the sake of leaving the meeting instead of for the sake of the mission. So yes. that really annoyed me. Corporate America. You will be very annoyed with the <laughs> with the alliance. Of, I'm, I'm sorry, with the Council of Non-Aligned Worlds, because they that's that's their role. They are there to do to make all the bad decisions, basically. Um, Lando returns to his quarters. He's furious and he's pulling out these little pieces from hidden points in the in his room. And, and it's clear what he's doing. He had somehow smuggled on pieces of a weapon and he's putting it together. Now, this weapon looks very different from the weapon that we saw in the pilot. What Lando is putting together is a very small, compact weapon called a PPG. It is not a human, like, it's not like a person-sized uh, A-cannon like they had in, in in the pilot. This is a very small, very compact, sleek weapon. So later on in the series, they explain what the PPG is for. And it is allowed, it, it is a weapon that allows them to fire projectiles inside of a pressurized, I guess, habitat, like in space, without puncturing the hole and destroying the whole thing. So... You'll see throughout the series, they use these PPGs. It gives off like a superheated uh, projectile. It'll it'll burn flesh. It'll kill people, but it won't go through the hole. And he's planning to just straight up go and murder Jakar. He's, he, <laughs> he leaves his quarter, you know, he's drunk. He leaves his quarters and he's marching towards Jakar. And he runs into Talia. Like he bumps into her. This is a very 90s situation by the way. And I keep saying that, but it's just like the way we, the way stories were told in the 90s, this is just kind of uh, the typical structure. They run into each other, and she gets a flash of what his intentions are. She can see clearly that he plans to go murder Jakar. She goes to tell Garibaldi, and so Garibaldi intercepts Lando. And they have a, <laughs> they have a, they have their confrontation. And this, I think, exemplifies Lolly's character, like the archetype that he's supposed to be. Yeah, it kind of gives you a preview of what their relationship would be like. Because at one point, they're adversarial, but then at the next turn, they're almost, uh, I wouldn't say even friends, but yeah, I would say friends to a certain extent. And that kind of develops throughout the series as well. Lando and Garibaldi, they have a very interesting relationship uh, that's very volatile at times. And with Garibaldi, it did take me a while to warm up to his character too, because I don't know why, but when I was first watching this show, I kind of kept getting Bruce Willis vibes from Jerry Doyle playing this character. You know, the wisecracking, yeah. tough guy that's got a mysterious past and it's a lot going on underneath. And I thought at the time that that was real tropey and reductive. But the writing, 
you have first impressions of a lot of these characters, and I think that's on purpose by Straczynski. They seem yeah. to be archetypes, but all of these characters have nuance that is developed and explored later on, and that includes Garibaldi. Yeah. Nita, how did you feel about Garibaldi and Londo's interaction? Because basically, like, Garibaldi knew what the situation was. He's like, okay, Londo's going to go try to kill Jakar. But he basically says, hey, don't make me do my job. Like, if you take one more step towards his quarters, I'm going to shoot you. So there are, this is the the whole like ambassador situation. These people are supposed to be a team, right? No. Okay. So to see these clips appear annoys me again, because it's like, <laughs> you're letting this guy slide. Uh, like, don't make, you're giving him a chance. Don't make me do my job. Okay, cool. And then you're going to tell him to hide the weapon that you know he has that's not supposed to be on board while this guy says, I'm going to kill him. Like, <laughs> that the mistake that I made was that I didn't kill him. So I'm I'm that won't happen again. I just don't I guess I'm not a politician. I just don't get why you wouldn't just do your job and, and just do the paperwork because that is your job. Or throw homeboy out into space and let's see how well his skills <laughs> work. Oh yeah, he does have gills. I forgot about that. But you know, Nita, you make a great point, but that's that's what you're feeling is what you're supposed to be feeling. Why are these people on this ship together if they're not even going to attempt to cooperate? Why why are you not doing your job? And why did you not either shoot him or haul him to the brig or wherever it is or put him at the airlock? That's what you're supposed to feel. Because this is not a perfect situation. And you know that in reality, that's how it goes, especially in politics. You know, this whole... I don't even... Not, like, Garibaldi I was going to say, I don't even know if that's how it goes in in, in real life. <laughs> yes, but... it, it is. I'm going <laughs> to tell you, the rules are not applied equally to everybody. Just look at, you know, what's happened with the Supreme Court. Hey, you're going to have to pay back these student loans. But you know those PPP loans that these millionaires got, that these members of Congress got? Yeah, you know, the ones that were forgiven. Just ignore that. But you better pay back those student yeah. loans. Right. That $50,000, I better see that $50,000. With, with that $9 million, oh, you know, they needed that $9 million. Those what are they going to pay those people back? <sighs> you know, they need our student loan money to bail out banks and shit. Am I not allowed to say shit? My bad. You can say whatever you want to say. Yeah, we're adults here. Yeah. We are grown-ups. Yeah. Uh Or, you know, I keep, I mean, because this show really does, even though it's nearly 30 years old, it's still pretty relevant. But about politics, again, the Supreme Court, hey, we're going to strike down affirmative action. But, you know, all these legacies... Don't just yep, ignore it. Legacy that. admissions. Yeah, you, you know the mommy and daddy donated a bunch of money, and that's how they got in. Don't don't just ignore that. That's okay. Nepotism is a okay. Or the wealthy, <laughs> especially. Yes. My yes, impression of the Garibaldi and Land. Oh wait, Lando. Lando. No situation. Lando. Yeah. Garibaldi came into that situation knowing everything. 
but he acted like he didn't know at first. Like, he's like, hey. And then eventually he shows his hand that he knows what he's going to do. I feel like he let him go, one, because that could start a war, just killing somebody's diplomat and <laughs> ambassador. And two, uh, he already knows that he's going to go after him. So it gives him information. Like, why get rid of that one and have to deal with someone else where I got to learn what his tricks are? Um, I really, I, I get the impression, or remember the impression, that Garibaldi is smarter than he acts, which he uses to his advantage. Like, he's goofy so that people don't take him seriously. But he knows what he's doing. Oh, maybe this is my perspective of like my job because sometimes i'll see kids doing things the kids do things that they're not supposed to be doing and instead of stopping them i'm like let me see what they're about to do so that i know <laughs> how they because like they might be doing something that and my kids are super young they're, they're three and four they might there might be something that they're doing that there are steps before they get to that and i if i learn those steps before they get to that then i can figure out how they get into that bigger thing that they're doing that they're not supposed to do. How did little person get crackers? I need to watch to see him get the chair to go <laughs> climb up to get the crackers. I feel like that's what Garibaldi's doing. He's not just stopping them as soon as and keeping them in their seats. He's he's watching to see what their behaviors are because they are smarter than a three-year-old and the stakes are larger. <laughs> like if kid eats crackers and he ain't hungry for lunch, okay. It's <laughs> great having the parents in sight because I honestly had never thought about that. But that's mm -hmm. absolutely right. I agree about your assessment of Garibaldi. He is a lot smarter than how he appears. But he realizes, hey, I'm chief of security of this entire station. And so information is really what he trades in in order to keep on top of things. Because mm -hmm. he did yeah. that in the, the movie. He he showed that he had information and that he was gathering it. How well he gathered information to put things together. So that's that's my impression of why he doesn't just you know, take people out. Right. He kind of batman his way through this episode, too. He was the one that did all the detective work. <laughs> and he solved this, uh, he you know, kept the murder from happening by using threat of violence. But it is interesting because all of those different lines of plot converge here. The Nars, they, they attack, I guess, three. Centauri is not going to do anything. Humans aren't going to do anything. The Narn are manipulating things in such a way to where they can just take the colony. They prevented a potential murder. And the whole situation is on the edge that if one of those things moves in just such a way, they could erupt into war. And yeah, one diplomat murdering another would justify either side trying to escalate. And it's very interesting because, yeah, Garibaldi basically knew what he was standing between. He knew where he was. He's like, we, we, we not, we're not going to do this. <laughs> but that also kind of points out the trust that Sinclair, being the commander of the station, has in his staff. They, they know what they're trying to do. They're trying to do the right thing, but also they're trying to be all about peace and making the good decisions regardless of what their home governments want them to do. So what happens is Carr is then called into the council chambers. Sinclair comes out and basically he lays the whole thing down. He's like, look, we figured it out. We went and we saved, we, uh, we saved this uh, 
supply ship from being raided. And guess what we found? And they throw out another NARM. It's the NARM that was on the command ship. And they explained it all. He goes, you know what? From our conversation, we realized the NARM would sell to anyone. You sold weapons to the raiders and you have uh, people show how to use the weapons and make sure that they don't sell to a third party. So here he is. You all were responsible. It is connected to Rygash 3. And then this is where Sinclair shows like his uh, his abilities to. He goes, he basically says, look, we can reveal all of this to the public and we'll sanction you. And everyone will be justified in, in uh, hating you. Or y'all can retreat from Rygash 3 and uh, leave that colony. What they do in the next scene is, is hilarious to me. They basically are, they, they fast forward to problem solved. It's Garibaldi and Sinclair walking down, walking through the station and like talking about like, oh yeah, you know, we, we solved the problem. The Narn backed off, the Centauri are happy, Earth Central is happy, everybody's happy, no war is going to happen. And it's it's kind of like, they don't show you the process and the steps because they, they told you how it was going to go. While this is happening, ISN is on the news. EarthGov has elected their incumbent president, uh, Luis Santiago. You're going to hear that name later in the series, too. And this is when Alia finally catches up with Susan Yvonne. She goes to the casino and she basically, she ambushes her there. Uh, one, one little note that I want to throw out there is it's hilarious because Garibaldi is sitting there and he is stuffing his face. He is chowing down. I think they use food pretty good in this series. The conversation that Talia and Ivanova have, this is what Mel was commenting on. She explains, the, the second in command explains to the site core woman that she was trying to avoid her because of how the, what the site core represented and that she came there representing the site core. Uh, when you are found out to be a psychic, you can either join the psych corps, be imprisoned, or be drugged so that to keep your powers from working. Um, what the the woman from the psych corps, she was born into it and raised into it. Like she she believes in everything that the psych corps is doing, and kind of is when she tells her what happened to her mother that the drugs made her basically lose her life. Like the lights in her as she says the lights in her eyes um eventually went away as they kept drugging her eventually she takes her own life um she doesn't see she sees them all as prisoners like you don't have a choice you either work for them you either go to prison or you get drugged till you're no longer yourself and the what's her name the woman representing the side court she doesn't talia talia uh she doesn't see herself as a prisoner I'm like, well, obviously. And obviously that's her perspective. Um, that was kind of really powerful that um, she saw it as, Italia sees it as this good thing. And um, Ivanovich, is that her name? Ivanova. Ivanova, okay. Yeah, She's like, you guys are evil. Yeah. It was the way the story was delivered too. It reveals her tragic backstory. Susan Ivanova comes across as being stoic, but really she's just hurt. And she has kind of a pessimistic view on things and she doesn't trust people very easily. And she definitely does not like telepaths. I thought that was a masterful 
performance. And this is just episode one. They did an amazing job. Yeah, they laid it on pretty thick with that story, but it does reveal a lot about that character. That uh, it, it reveals a storyline that's going to carry throughout the whole series. I believe it was wonderfully written and performed. And it still had a lot of power even after watching it all these years later. And I really liked the fact that Kaya, at the end of the conversation, she says, well, I hope we, something to the effect of, I hope we get off on a better foot or something like that. And Ivanova says, I don't think that's going to happen as she walks off. And I'm paraphrasing, yeah. <laughs> but I, I love that type of writing uh, with Babylon 5 that is really, uh, there are some points when it's really raw and real. Mm -hmm. And now you get why Ivanova really doesn't want to have anything to do with this woman and what she represents. You get a sense that the telepaths and Psychor are going to play a central role too. I mean, they have their own little icon badge. They wear the gloves. They have a very particular look that, I mean, I you know, they made some very specific choices to make the characters stand out and look a little intimidating, but they also are alienated. So even though they are human, they're not quite human. You know, there's something different. And so they have to be dealt with differently. They clearly made the Psychor like their own culture. Yes. There was a lot of world building within just in each of the different cultures, but they had their own world building just as much as any of the other planets or species. And something else yeah. that I like that they did, uh, even in the pilot movie, is I love how they showed with the Vorlons that there are different environments in Babylon 5. And I like the fact that they put in the touch that in order to go see a Vorlon in their quarters, you have to put the mask on and and go through all those protocols. You just can't walk in and like how some science fiction shows that supposedly have all these multiple species, but everybody breathes the same air and everybody, you know, can exist in the same. They even talk about in the pilot movie, the difference in the gravity and how certain sections of the station rotate at a different rate to accommodate the different species that live in that section. I think that's wonderful details. Yeah, I think they did. I agree. I think they did well just to flesh out the universe that these characters are living in. And they do even better as the se season goes on because now we have this strong foundation laid down. Mm -hmm. We we get a little, even if you miss parts of some of these backstories, there are certain characters you didn't get any backstory from anyway. Right. At all. Right. You just saw their face and they're there. And you, even with their performances, their little, their short interactions, you get a sense like that character is going to be interesting coming down, the, coming down the line and they would be fun to learn about. Like, like Dylan. My favorite character. Let me say that now. <laughs> One who doesn't know story. how to eat popcorn. And I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to She's like, what is this human giving me? And why is he giving it to me? And what am I supposed to do with it? Those little touches just by the way she sits and she's looking at it. That's wonderful performance. And then why do you think this is humorous? 
help me understand. I thought that was yeah. brilliant to pair her and Garibaldi together in that final scene. Yes. And she did a really like, good job, yeah. like, being curious about this new food. Like I said, with my job, I get to see people introduce the food for the first time, and she actually did it. Mira Herman <laughs> is a wonderful, you know, oh, God rest yeah. her soul. She's a wonderful, was a wonderful actress. And she give, she gives a tremendous performance throughout the season too. In my opinion, she is the heart of that series. And the transformation that she goes through and what she goes through, it's gonna be fun, y'all. It's gonna be really interesting to watch. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. She she is the heart of the series in uh, several important ways. She kind of sets certain actions in uh, in the motion. But yeah, uh, the Lynn was the one that Garibaldi got to show his favorite thing, in the second favorite thing in the universe to. He does. And what was that second favorite thing? Holy. Oh, y'all, y'all. They go more into detail about that too in the series. It's crazy. Yeah. Which I think is kind of great, which we didn't say, <laughs> but I'm going to say it. It was it's, it's Looney Tunes. This dude loves Looney Tunes. And that was his... That's his second of everything in the world. Because he and is you a know what? tune. <laughs> yeah. Which is clever because it was uh, Warner that helped uh, produce yes. Babylon 5. That was kind of like and, a ton in cheek. Yeah. And so they got access to the Warner archives and they're like, hey, let's put some Looney Tunes in here. He was watching Duck Dodgers in the, 20, the what, 24th, 24th and a half century. <laughs> yeah. Which was kind of cute. Which, yeah, that's that's the year. <laughs> Isn't that the year that they're supposed to be in? They're in the 23rd. 23rd. Okay, close enough. Yeah. I was like, this is what people a long time ago used to... It reminds me of uh, Voyager with uh, oh, yeah. Tom and them. When they were they were doing the, the serials in the holodeck. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was okay. like, I'm going to be fascinated by what the history thought we would be doing now. Well, it's interesting how that to, to, to see how people like in the 1940s and 50s thought life would be like now. Mm-hmm. Like we would be like the Jetsons and all of that. And it's like, no, not quite. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but that's what well, they like, thought. Even with uh, this show, the, the <laughs> I was thrown off by the computers. And I'm like, I know that it's like the the 1990s. And that's what, I, I, that's what computers kind of look like back then. So like yes. a couple hundred years <laughs> in the future. like, And I'm thinking like they could have thought this a little bit. Like it would have been easy. Maybe not so easy, but maybe easy. I guess maybe because of their budget. But you could have animated something that looked like the computer screen was not so pixelated. So well, like, they did the best no, that they could at the time. They Seriously, could. I mean, they no, technically, they, animation existed, but to put the animation on the screen, I, they could have put a VCR on the screen. I mean, like it was an actual screen behind. It. <laughs> but I'm think I'm thinking like. Maybe I'm just thinking 30 years ahead when it comes to set design, but because that thing's fa- those things fascinate me. No, I, I think I think they were right. They're predicting that runaway capitalism stifles innovation, and so we don't get like holographic displays. Well, the humans don't. Right. Not for a long time. Right. And and if and if you remember in the series uh, in Babylon Five, Earth still runs on. Capitalist yep. economy. Yeah. Sure does. yeah. And all the countries are still separate. Humanities. Are- kind of, sort of, but not really. I mean, there you know, they are. Earth gov, they're the United still- Earth, but yeah. yeah, there are factions that are kind of separated. They're not as united as 
as you know united earth on in star trek oh no not like, so I, the way my dad described <clears throat> it was like the countries are more like how we have states yeah yeah it's like that. that's a good analogy kind of went into this with the mindset that these uh, biologicals are more evolved as far as interactions are concerned, but it really just seems like they are the same as we are just 200 years into our future with uh, spaceships. Bingo. But there's yes. no like thought, evolution of thought at all. No. Bingo. It, they, they're very much entrenched in uh, conspiracy, deception, uh, and corruption. nationalism, fascism. Yeah. yeah, all of that still exists. And that was yeah, by Earth, design. And that Earth is going design. through all that. Earth is going through all that and having to deal with other planets at the same time. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. But hey, at least they got that faster than light travel thing figured out. <laughs> and I think didn't the Centauri give them? Oops, sorry. <laughs> Never mind. I, no, I think I, th I think no, that was in this episode, I believe. They oh, was they, it? Um, okay. They well, if not, well, not yeah, the Centauri shared. I shared junk gate Just technology. Delete that, y'all. That's a spoiler, I think. Oh no, oh. they didn't. <laughs> I heard the word jump. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember how they got it. But then, like, if they gave it to them and then they go to war with each other, they will. Go, I mean, they will go. No, wait, that was the Satari. I'm getting the species messed up. It's all good. So <laughs> it's gonna make sense. We'll, we'll wrap this. We'll wrap this up. The episode ends basically with Sinclair trying to get a nice rest, and he immediately gets a message that they need him, and he's like, "Oh boy," you know, kind of like the. Here we go again. And it and that wraps up season, I'm sorry, episode one of Babylon 5, um, Midnight on the Firing Line. Um, final thoughts uh, of this episode for you all. I thought Mel was going to go first. Um, I'm thinking. I, I was thinking about like the telepath issue and I in my mind, it's like, do you have an issue with telepaths, or do you have issues with how on to telepaths? Uh, and I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how Wando, I guess, like, encourages other people to, for lack of better words, forget the past and move forward. And um, it was so long ago. Just get over it. <laughs> and you know. Get over yeah. it without any type of reparative justice. Just, you know, yeah, we, we, we get out at evil and screwed up, but never mind. Never mind. That sounds Whoopsie. so familiar. Yeah, that sounds so familiar. Yeah, I, I had... Oh, oh sorry. Um, no, neither. We, didn't, we weren't saying that you did. No. Um, when I, I watched it, I don't know, one of the times that I watched it, it reminded me of watching it with my dad, obviously. And he would go on rants and always compare Jakar to like Malcolm X. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. It's okay. like, I I'm going to do what I need to do, but at the same time, he still has to like in his determination to to do what's necessary was that that whole thing that I remember from my dad's little rants after we, because he would get heated after we watched like, <laughs> all the politics, like he would always compare it to like things that are happening in real life and I'm like eight years old and I'm sitting there trying to keep up and I'm just like I want to see more of the text. 
I mean, yeah. You know, for me revisiting this episode after, because it's been a while since I've rewatched Babylon 5. I haven't done it in over a year, but it's just wonderful to see all of the seeds planted in terms of the plot and where it will go and to see how they blossom and how they're resolved. And then also, too, looking at the time frame that it was made in, it's amazing that this was greenlit because this show deals with issues that are, for good or for bad, timeless. Because I believe that no matter how advanced we get, just speaking of humans, there's going to always be factions of people that are going to be jockeying for position, for political power, for whatever. I hope that we would go the route of Star Trek, and that's something to aspire to. But Babylon 5, uh, I hate to say it, but it's probably more probable in how things will react because all these people are crammed into the space station, and as we discussed, everybody has an agenda. Uh, Everybody's trying to maneuver. And this is just the political part. They haven't even touched on the capitalism because capitalism is... Damien stated is very alive and well, and it's not just Earth that is capitalistic. Because yeah. look at the Narns, they will sell to anybody. The Centauri, yeah. they're very, yeah, I would say they're very capitalistic as well. The only ones I think that are not, that are the most ideal species is the Membari, but they have a yeah. past. So they go. They have a yeah. They have a big. <laughs> they have uh, a past. It's complicated. So yeah, I, I really think that this show is extraordinary, and you can see that from this very first episode. I think like the comparison to Star Trek is like Star Trek had basically destroyed Earth, almost destroyed themselves before they they got it. Right. World War Three and and the genetic. And if they had met the stuff. Vulcans, they probably would. We probably would have destroyed. Yeah, and ourselves. it was World War Three that that sparked that whole let's let's do something one person was like one crazy person decided let me do something better than what we got here because we can't get any worse and with babylon 5 it's like they're taking the long way (laughs) we're gonna drag this out we're not just gonna come up to an epiphany because we met somebody it's like we gotta actually build that foundation of getting to know each other and and work out the kinks yeah so we will be exploring all of that and much more as we continue to go through the series thank you all for joining us um i guess signing off uh, i am working on a couple of projects of course you know we got this podcast going but i'm also working on a new another podcast that may drop before these episodes drop um me and my brother were doing a podcast called Legendary Blurcore, getting all the blurts together to talk about everything nerdy, comic books, me, pro wrestling, MMA, whatever your, whatever makes your nerd heart flutter. We talk about it. Uh, what you got going on, Mel? I am uh, captain of the Starship Rebellion. I go live on Saturdays at four Eastern Standard Time on TikTok. And we talk about all things creative, whatever you do that that is art or creativity, we're going to showcase it. Be, have fun. I'm also an author. <laughs> I have a young adult series called Theory of Rebellion. And you can find it on Amazon. And uh, yeah.